Welcome to the Paycom Podcast. We are medical management radio for the solo provider and small group physician practice. Paycom is where medicine meets entrepreneurship. Now, here's your host, Carter Lumen. Hello and welcome to Medical Management Radio. I'm your host, Carter Lumen. Paycom is the Professional Association of Healthcare Office Management. Today, we're going to talk about getting employees back to work following the COVID crisis. And my guest today is Mr. George Halavik. Mr. Halavik is a founding member of Hoffman, Halavik, and Easterly, and he practices exclusively in the areas of labor and employment law, handling traditional labor law matters and employment related litigation. He has extensive experience representing employers with respect to all aspects of labor and employment law, including sexual and other forms of unlawful harassment, employment discrimination, wrongful discharge, disability accommodations, family and medical leave, wage and hour, safety and health, employment contracts, non-competition agreements, employee handbooks, and policy construction. It's a comprehensive list. Mr. Halavik recently did a very popular webinar for PACOM's Delco chapter, where he discussed new and developing areas of pandemic law and the effect COVID was having on employers and employees. I'll make sure we include a link to that webinar below so that we're not covering exactly the same ground again. That said, there have been some updates and clarifications since the webinar, and we will cover those. Our main focus, however, is going to be how to get your staff back to work and what to do if an employee declines to return or follow policies you may have in place to protect your patients and fellow staff members. Mr. Hlavik, thank you for joining us today. Is it okay if I call you George? Absolutely, Carter, and thanks for having me. My pleasure. Let's spend a few minutes discussing changes that have been made to various government programs since the webinar last month. Is there anything critical that comes to your mind about the CARES Act or the payroll protection program that our members should be aware of? Absolutely. I guess the timing today is a little fortuitous. Believe it or not, last night, President Trump signed into law something called the PPP Flexibility Act. I'm sure most of the people that are are listening are aware of what the PPP loans are and the CARES Act that got passed back in March. What the PPP Flexibility Act does, Carter, is it enhances and provides some much more employer-friendly provisions to the CARES Act as it relates to the forgiveness element of those loans. A, a lot of okay, a lot of employers took out PPP loans to enable them to continue operations or continue to pay employees immediately after the the pandemic hit. But the catch with respect to these loans was that they were only going to be forgiven if certain requirements were met. And the PPP Flexibility Act, which was just passed again, like I said, last night, or was signed into law last night, Mm -hmm. extends some pretty significant employer protections and makes it much easier for employers to get that type of loan forgiveness. Okay. Are there any particular details that are relevant? Sure. Yeah. I I think most people that have the loans are under the impression that they must, they can only count the payroll that they have paid out over the eight week period from the date they received the loan for loan forgiveness purposes. The PPP Flexibility Act increases that eight week time period to 24. So that's a very significant change. If you had received a loan and you had 
sort of mapped out how you were going to use that loan money and you wanted to try to maximize the amount of it that will be forgiven, you were looking at a very small eight-week window. Now you can look at a, a 24-week window and where some employers might have had a hard time meeting all the payroll eligibility requirements for the forgiveness element of the loan, this, this expansion to 24 weeks will significantly aid that, help them in that process. Another thing that's very helpful to employers is that prior to this Flexibility Act going into place and, and being passed last night or signed into law last night, the requirement was that you had to use the loan proceeds up to 75%. You, you can't use less than 75% for payroll purposes. You could use up to 25% for mortgage purposes, rent purposes, employee benefit purposes, and some other things. But it was clear if you used anything in excess of 25%, that would not be forgiven. The ratio has now been changed to where the payroll costs have to at least exceed 60%. So now you can use the other loan proceeds, the other 40% for some of those other categories that I talked about. There's also a, a provision in the new Flexibility Act that defers payroll tax payments for the remainder of 2020 rather than just through the end of the loan forgiveness period. And I guess the probably the other big change is if you're not going to get the entire loan amount forgiven, it used to be it was going to be a one-year loan. You'd have to pay it back within one year. Now that's been extended to five years. That's significant changes and could require some strategic planning on the part of practice managers and their their practice owners here in the short term to take advantage of. Yeah, absolutely. I think the best thing, again, the advice we're giving everybody that took out a PPP loan is work closely with your bank, with your lender, make sure that they understand everything that you're doing every step of the way, communicate with them about the forms that they're going to require you to fill out for loan forgiveness purposes. You don't want there to be any hiccups at the point in time where you're trying to convince the lender that the entire amount of your loan should be forgiven. You don't want to find out that your lender has some sort of special requirement that you haven't been able to meet. So the best thing to do, you know, even if you haven't, you have a hard time digesting everything that I just said, is just talk to your lender and make sure you're on the same page with your lender. That makes sense. So let's let's kind of move on to what's happening currently. As as states and municipal governments begin to relax restrictions on movements and ease the restriction on elective medical procedures, many practices that have been closed or operating on reduced staff will need to return to a fully functional state. Obviously, as as hiring and training new employers is much more time consuming than bringing back experienced staff. Let's talk about getting those people back into the office. In most cases, this will be simple. Many people want to return to work and they're looking forward to doing so. However, given some of the considerations and changes to unemployment, this might not always be the case. Some furloughed employers, employees sorry, might be making more through various unemployment programs than they did while working. Some might have anxiety issues and some may have found other employment. All these issues are going to affect the employer in some capacity. It seems one of the biggest issues that I'm hearing about is whether employees, whether they must allow employees to continue to work from home as possible. Are there any thoughts on how that works from an employment perspective? Sure. I mean, you you hit on a bunch of things there, and I, I wish that the answers were simple for employers, 
but unfortunately they're not. You're right. It, it would in a perfect world, everybody would would be breaking the doors down of their employers to come back to work. They want to come back to work. They they want to get back to doing what they were doing. But but that's not the case. And there's a lot of fear. There's a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of misinformation. There's a lot of anxiety out there amongst employees. And you have a, a, a reluctance in many, many different areas, both in the healthcare field and in the non-healthcare field of employees who, who don't want to come back to work or who are afraid to come back to work. So like you said, you have medical practices that maybe were operating on smaller staffs or not operating at all. They, they were basically, everyone was furloughed and they were just waiting this out. Now they're getting ready to get started to, to have people come back. The question is, can they require people to come back? Can they basically say, hey, look, we want you to return to work. We want you to return to the office. The answer in, in most instances is going to be yes. You know, there's some ability for employees to say, hey, look, and, and believe it or not, in, in some states, in, for instance, I, I'm in Pennsylvania. That's where I, I practice. The, the governor of Pennsylvania has indicated to employees in our state that if you've been allowed to work from home up to this point, your employer should continue to let you work from home going forward. Well, that, that's nice for the governor to say. I don't, I don't know that he understands a lot of the challenges that employers are facing and that most jobs aren't really designed to be performed at home. Some employers decided they would let people work from home. Let's just say, for instance, take a medical practice. Normally, you're billing people would work in the facility, in, in the office, and, and that's where they work so that they have communications with everyone else in, in the practice. But maybe over this break or since the pandemic started, they've allowed some billing people to work from home. The question is, can we make those billing people come back to work? I think the answer is yes. Um, there's some critical facts that, and factors that are going to go into play there. And as the three are basically, what, what was the job intended to do? Uh, did you allow people to do this before? And then the third and most important thing is, if they've been working from home, how's it been working out? And if it hasn't been working out, you can absolutely require people to come back. That's good information. And, and I realized that I started this with, with a lot of different kind of bullet points about reasons why people might not be willing to return to work. So let, let's break it down a little further. What if an employee refuses to return because they're making more money via unemployment compensation? Sure. Uh, we call that the Governor Wolf special in, in Pennsylvania. <laughs> Governor Wolf, about, I don't know, three weeks ago, maybe a month ago, had a press conference in which he was asked by a reporter, you know, what should employees who are making more on unemployment do when they're recalled to work? And, and Governor Wolf said, stay home, collect unemployment. Again, that was to the collective gasps of employers all throughout the Commonwealth. But that's basically what he told them. A follow-up question was, well, what should employers do then to staff their workplaces? And the governor's answer was pay people more. So again, I say that because it's not that simple. And the, the, the issue you raise is a very, very real one. Employers all across the country are facing this problem. Employees not wanting to come back to work because they're doing better on unemployment. The short answer to it is that's not a good enough reason to stay home from work. Despite what Governor Wolf may think, he can't change hundreds of years of unemployment compensation law through a press conference. In order to collect unemployment compensation in Pennsylvania and every other state, you need to be able to show that you're ready, willing, and able to work. So if we offer you a job, 
and you say, well, thanks, but no thanks. I'd rather stay home and watch Ghostbusters. That's not going to cut it. You know, you're, you're, you're basically saying I'm not ready, willing, and able to return to work, and therefore you're not entitled to unemployment. So I, I, anticipating your next question, what should an employer do in that instance? In almost, in almost every state, they need to notify the unemployment compensation department or bureau or whoever handles that within their state. They need to let them know that we have made an offer of recall, an offer of reemployment to X, and they turned it down. And in Pennsylvania, there's a special form actually that you're supposed to fill out and send in and provide the details of that. And so I would encourage every employer that is running into that problem to look it at their particular state and fill out that particular form. It's also important for that, what I talked about earlier from the PPP loan forgiveness standpoint, if you can't show that you made offers to people and they rejected them, that's going to impact your ability to get the full amount of your loan forgiven. Okay, so there, so there are some some things that that need to be done. Notify the unemployment commission, and then document the fact that you did offer the position back to the employee for the PPP program. Yes, and what I would say is the first thing is make sure that your offer of recall was done in writing. Okay, for per- for PPP purposes and loan forgiveness purposes, it's critical that. That offer of recall was made in writing, not that you picked up the telephone and you started calling people and saying, hey, we're getting ready to start on Monday. We're going into the up here. It's the yellow phase. I want you to come back to work. That's not going to be good enough. You need to send the person a letter that explains to them they're being offered their job back, What they're, that they're, it's going to be at the same wages, the same hours, the same duties and responsibilities. And if it's not going to be, then what those what those changes have been, and that needs to be communicated to them in writing. And then if they reject it, then you go and you, you fill out the, the form and you document the fact that they rejected it in writing. You don't have to send them any of that documentation in terms of their rejection, but as an employer, you need to make sure that you have a file that documents all recall rejections that you can use both for unemployment and, and PPP loan forgiveness purposes. Excellent advice. Now, how about in the case of somebody saying, look, I'd I'd really like to come back to work, but I'm scared or I'm anxious. You know, I'm going to be exposed to more patients and more sick people. And I'm, I'm worried about bringing this home. And maybe they request FMLA time to cover an extended period where the practice wants to return to fully operational status. What are the employer's responsibilities in that situation? Well, it's tricky. It's tricky for a couple reasons. Number one, the the FMLA isn't the only issue they need to worry about in that scenario. There's also ADA issues, Americans with Disabilities Act issues that need to be considered and, and worked through. But Let's just assume that you you contact somebody and you say, hey, look, Mary, we're reopening the office on Monday. We'd like you to come back. And, and Mary says, well, I'm afraid to come back. I, I don't want to come back because I'm afraid. That's not in and of itself good enough. It, it just a a verbalization of fear or or anxiety isn't going to be enough to justify them for turning down the job and again would result in them losing unemployment you could actually then theoretically 
terminate that employee. And, and I didn't I didn't say this earlier, and I apologize, Carter. But in the first scenario that we talked about, somebody just wants to stay home and collect more unemployment. They can do that. My guess is they were furloughed up to this point, and now you're actually going to be terminating their employment. So their employment is terminated. They don't have a job anymore. In this scenario that you just raised with FMLA, the answer back to that person wouldn't be, hey, that's not good enough. You're terminated. It's going to be, well, why are you anxious? And if you're anxious, we need you to fill out these FMLA forms, assuming your practice is large enough that the FMLA applies. If, if you're a smaller practice and the FMLA doesn't apply, you won't necessarily provide them with FMLA paperwork, but you'll require or request the employee to provide some sort of medical documentation to back up the need for continued time off due to anxiety. Uh, and again, if they're diagnosed with a, a actual medical disorder, anxiety, depression, whatever it might be, then they very well might be entitled to FMLA leave, or they might be entitled to an accommodation under the ADA, which would be a leave of absence. Okay. I am sensing a, a common thread in your answers here, and that is document, document, document. Yes. I should patent, I should patent the phrase, but I've, I've, said, I've said for many years, I've been doing this for 25 years, I said a long time ago and, and always say it to my clients, if something's not documented, it didn't happen. Okay. And, and that's, that's something that all employers should live by and understand. If it's not documented, it didn't happen. Them saying that it happened a year from now isn't going to carry the day. We want to make sure that it's documented. So, yes, I can't emphasize that point enough, and hopefully that's come across. Gotcha. Here's another potential objection. Love to be able to come back to work, but because schools are out or maybe in this case summer programs are closed down, I, I, I don't have any childcare solution. How does an employer handle that objection because it, it seems very legitimate you know if you've got a, a toddler or even a, a very young child in your house somebody has to provide supervision yes it's a difficult situation for everybody with respect to you know and i represent healthcare employers uh, I, I generally represent the employer side of things so the federal government stepped in and, and passed something that a lot of people have heard about, the Families First Coronavirus Response Act, which was designed to provide paid leave for a lot of employees out there uh, having the same, this exact issue during the pandemic. Unfortunately for healthcare employees, they're not covered by the FFCRA. The healthcare employers are exempt, and therefore they don't have that crutch to fall back on. So your question, what, what does an employer do, is simply you try to work with the employee to the greatest extent possible, understanding that they have no legal entitlement to time off for childcare purposes. Think about it. I mean, again, we're, the pandemic is a, the, the COVID-19 pandemic is a, hopefully a once in a lifetime thing that we're facing, but the, the, idea of having a job and needing childcare to help you work, that predated the, this pandemic. It, it, it always existed. I mean, people with young kids at home, young children uh, have always had to juggle that issue of, you know, how do I 
make sure I can come work and yet I have someone to take care of my children. The pandemic changed that to some extent because healthcare providers, I'm sorry, strike that, uh, daycare providers, childcare providers were put out of business. You know, the, in, a, most, in most states, the closure orders put them out of business and they couldn't continue to operate, which is what exacerbated the problem. Now employees didn't have any place for their kids to go. As states are beginning to reopen, hopefully that's going to be less of an issue because the daycare centers and the childcare centers are reopening. But if they don't have the ability to send somebody to, they don't have a daycare available to them, it's really up to the employer how to handle that. Because again, there is no legal entitlement to leave for that purpose. Good to know. So that one's really kind of employer discretion. Yes. The the last situation I can think of is the employees found another position. Okay, great. They found a way to, you know, keep income coming into their household. And, you know, frankly, they just don't want to go back to the practice and leave their new job. So are there any responsibilities on the employer's part as under the Payroll Protection Act that they need to do. Yes, I mean it's it's exact same it's the exact same scenario as the employee that just didn't want to come back to work or is afraid to come back to work. If you have somebody that found another job, you need to a have your the recall letter that you sent to that person offering them their job back, b document the fact that they rejected it, they rejected the recall because they let you know they found another job. And then C, make sure that you save all that and keep it for purposes of PPP loan forgiveness. You're going to need the the recall letter and the documentation regarding the reason that they rejected the recall in order to get the full benefit of the forgiveness part of the, the CARES Act. So document, document, document once again. Here's a, here's a different situation. What if an employer wishes to use some type of monetary incentive to return to work? Could those funds be taken from an existing payroll protection loan? Interestingly, when the CARES Act was first passed, had you asked me that question back in March, I would have told you no, because there really wasn't any guidance. And based upon the specific express language of the CARES Act, I don't think you could have been able to do that. But since March and the, and the passing of the CARES Act, there's been a lot of guidance issued by the IRS and, and the Small Business Administration and, and other agencies in the federal government. And it's clear now that you can provide some sort of incentive bonus to return and count that towards the payroll part of the PPP and, and it should be forgiven. Again, now, remember with respect to PPP loan forgiveness, you can only, if someone's making, if you have a doctor that's making $500,000 and you, you pay that doctor, whatever you pay them in the eight weeks or the 24 weeks, that full amount is not forgiven. That The maximum amount of loan forgiveness for payroll purposes is capped at $100,000, meaning not during the time period, but if I'm making a salary of $200,000 a year, only half of what you pay me for PPP purposes will be forgiven because you have to pretend I'm getting paid $100,000. So if with the scenario you raised, the bonus somehow would take them above the $100,000 mark, it will be prorated in terms of what amount will be forgiven. Fair enough. 
And I think that's, uh, I think we're going to start seeing monetary incentives, not hearing a lot about it yet, but I have seen a question or two in our, our internal community communications about it. So that's, that's good information. It can be included. And speaking of topics that come up on our Paycom listserv, here's one that I'm very curious about. There's been a rather heated discussion about a practice owner mandating that masks be worn while in the office. Some of our members have no problem with it. Others kind of go along with, no, it's my body, my choice. Is it legal for a medical practice owner to mandate that masks be worn during business hours or while in the office in general? I think the answer to that is probably going to be largely dictated by state law because every state you know, that closed has implemented certain requirements and restrictions to reopen. So for your business to reopen or you know, even when most states closed, they allowed, quote, essential businesses to continue operating. And most medical practices were considered essential businesses. But in order to continue to operate as an essential business, the state put forth or, or set forth certain requirements that had to be met in order for you to continue to operate. So I'll just use Pennsylvania as an example, Carter. In the reopening process for medical practices and all employers, the governor has said, you, you, your employees must wear a mask at work. It is not voluntary. They do not have the choice of whether or not they want to wear a mask or not. So in Pennsylvania, you absolutely can require people to wear masks at work. Now, there are some limited exceptions. You don't have to wear a mask when you're eating. You don't have to wear a mask when you're drinking. If you have a standalone four-walled off office like I do here where I'm working, you know, if my door is shut, I can be sitting in my office without a mask on. And the, the only other exception is employees can claim an exemption to the mask requirement if they have some sort of medical issue like asthma or some sort of uh, breathing problem, but the employer is not obligated necessarily to grant them the exception to the mask requirement. They may just give them time off until either the mask requirement doesn't exist or there's some other accommodation that they can make. But the long and short of your answer is I think it's going to be dictated by state law. I would be surprised if most other states were not like Pennsylvania, meaning I have a feeling in the overwhelming majority of states, employers are going to be able to dictate to employees in medical practices and in non-medical practices to come back to work, you must wear a mask, at least until things get better or there's a, a change in the thought process on masks. I mean, you remember how you know it's evolved from the beginning of this, so who knows where we'll be a month from now. It has. So uh, your best advice is for practice managers and and practice owners is to stay advised of the state law in their area, which could be very flexible right now and and change quickly. Yeah, exactly. It is. It's it's changing rapidly. Uh, I'm hoping, like I'm sure most people are, that you know these masks are not are going to be here forever. That there's something that you know. Once we can get through this, we won't have to, to deal with that. But I think in, in most states, at least right now, that's the prevailing wisdom, and they're probably being required as a, a condition of reopening. That makes sense. 
Well, George, that really kind of concludes the questions I have. Are there any other things that maybe I, I missed? Uh, once again, not really my, my specialty on employment law. So if there's anything you'd like to add, please, please feel free to do so. Well, Carter, I think you just violated the cardinal rule of hosting a, any kind of broadcast with a lawyer. You never give a lawyer the <laughs> mic and just tell them to talk. But I will just mention one thing. And sure. that one thing is we talked about recalls, uh, but we didn't talk about how you make the decision to recall your employees. Meaning, let's say you're a medical practice and everybody has been furloughed and now you're going to reopen, but you don't need everybody back. How do you decide which nurses to bring back, which techs to bring back, which front office people to bring back, which receptionists to bring back? It's going to be critical for every medical practice, every hospital, every doctor's office to make sure that those decisions are based upon some sort of objective criteria. And I've cautioned all, and I represent a lot of medical practices and a lot of hospitals. I've cautioned them. This is not the time to quote clean house to use the pandemic as an excuse to basically get rid of the people that you, you, you wanted to get rid of for a long time, but you didn't do the things you needed to, like document their performance problems, warn them about their performance problems, and now you're just going to use this to get rid of them. That would be a very bad idea. Number one, because that person is, I guarantee they're going to challenge the fact that they didn't got, got, got brought back the recall decisions are going to be scrutinized to an unbelievable degree. So you want to make sure that the decision is based on some objective criteria, whatever that is, whether it's seniority, whether it's discipline in the file, whether it's a performance evaluation system, whatever it might be. And just make sure, again, that once you've made your decisions, that you look at it, have somebody look at it for you to make sure that there's no disparate impact issues, that you use seniority to recall people or you used performance to recall people, and as it turns out, of your, you had 50 employees, you only had 10 employees that were over the age of 60, and all 10 of them are being terminated in this recall approach. So we don't want that to happen. Uh, I guarantee you the next thing we're gonna see after everything settles down is an influx or a, uh, just the floodgates opening of employment-related claims by people that were that were let go or terminated or laid off because of the, the pandemic. I see. So it sounds like pick a methodology and stick absolutely strictly to that methodology when deciding on who to return to the office. Yes, and then and then even though the methodology was non-discriminatory, once you've run all your employees through that methodology, take a look at what the results are and, and make sure there's no disparate impact there. Does it look like there was a disparate impact on based upon age or based upon gender or based upon race? And if there was, then maybe go back and, and take a look at your criteria and, and see if we can make some adjustments so that we don't have that disparate impact. I think that that's excellent advice. George, Listen, I really appreciate that you took the time out of your schedule again to address Paycom membership and help us out with this podcast. It is really appreciated. And I, I can tell you that in general, the, the community loves you. The, the advice that you've given in the past and continue to give, it, it, it has value and it is appreciated. Well, thank you very much. That's, that's nice to hear. I appreciate that. We're doing our best. This is an unprecedented time. I've said before that you know, we're kind of in a, there's a new area of law that's developing this whole idea of pandemic law. And anybody that tells you they have all the answers is, is being dishonest with you. 
you know, uh, we're all trying to figure it out as we go. But the, the most important thing is for everybody to, you know, just continue to stay abreast of how, how things develop because things are changing rapidly. That makes sense. Okay, everybody, that concludes this episode of Medical Management Radio. For more information about the Professional Association of Healthcare Office Management, please visit our website at www.paycom.com. That's P-A-H-C-O-M.com. Thank you to our listeners for tuning in to this edition, and we look forward to you joining us again next month. Thank you for joining us. Tune in for new shows on the third Wednesday of each month. PACOM is the Professional Association of Healthcare Office Management, home of the nationally accredited Certified Medical Manager. Professional credentials matter. Learn more at PACOM.com. That's P-A-H-C-O-M.com.